Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. This is Brittany McCann, and today's podcast is called Christian Conflict with the Inklings. Brandy Vensel and I have a conversation centered around a book called Bandersnatch. I really enjoyed the discussion, and I hope you will too. This podcast has been simultaneously released on Aftercast. To start off, Brittany and I are going to introduce ourselves. Brittany and me, Brandy, are going to introduce (laughs) ourselves because this recording is actually going on two different podcasts. It's going on Charlotte Mason Poetry and it's going on Aftercast. And so we're going to introduce ourselves as if you don't know who we are because some of you may not listen to both of those podcasts. So Brittany, we'll let you go first. Hello, my name is Brittany McGann. I write for charlottemasonpoetry.org. And we have a podcast as well, so sometimes you can hear me on the podcast. I have been using Charlotte Mason's methods and philosophy for about six years. Right now, I have two students, and we've been—I've um, been teaching for four years. Oh, and I used to have a retreat called Grace to Build, but I don't mm-hmm. anymore. Kind of sad. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, uh, my name is Brandy. I am the owner of Afterthoughts, which is afterthoughtsblog.net. And I have a couple of podcasts, Galay Sisters, and then Aftercast, which is mostly the audio blog version of the Afterthoughts blog. I have four kids. They're 16 down to nine. And we've Basically been using Charlotte Mason the whole time. I've used Ambleside for 10 years, Ambleside Online for 10 years. I guess in preschool, I had a brief flirtation with being overly academic. That's my real confession. (laughs) In preschool. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's funny, but I actually do think that that really started us off on the wrong foot because I think I sort of damaged something, you know, just not allowing for the, the free play, trying to, it's so easy, I think, as a homeschooling mom when you start getting excited about it to want to just start early because they're there and you're there and you're excited. You're really excited. Yeah. Yeah. So I do kind of feel bad for him because if he had not been my oldest, then, you know, I would have had someone else to inflict my methods upon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I tried that also, but I remember I read a story to my four-year-old, like a whole story without stopping. And then I, I asked her to narrate and she just looked at me and said, I didn't understand anything you just said. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, there goes that. I think we're done with that. <laughs> we're going to wait. Charlotte Mason was right. <laughs> that is funny. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yes. So she saved me from. Yeah, from yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She saved me from myself. Yes. <laughs> There's been a few times where I've gone up and I've remembered, I had a memory of something like that and I've apologized to my 16 year old and he's always like, mom, I don't even remember. <laughs> Right. Like, well, it bothers that you makes me more feel better. Me. Yeah. Exactly. So not not so much but, damage done then. Yeah. So you're saying you're not going to talk with your therapist about this in 20 years? Okay, we're good. Right. <laughs> I'll give you something else to talk about. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's always something. All right. So this episode, I don't know that we've actually named it, but we're kind of talking about uh, friendly disagreement. Mm-hmm. There are some things we disagree on. You and me. Yes, a few things. <laughs> but we, we agree on many more things yes, than we, we disagree do. on. Yes, we do. Well, and the most important thing is we have Christ in common. So 
the rest of exactly. it matters way less. Right. And we handle our disagreement better because we have Christ in common. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Though we can, we can even agree to disagree with people of other faiths. I will say that, but absolutely. But, I totally um, agree. So you're saying you agree with me? <laughs> I do. I do. One more thing we agree on. <laughs> okay. So what do we disagree? I remember one of the first things I disagreed with you on was how late we should be up at night. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Because I stay up really late because my husband works late. Right. And then I get up kind of early too. So <laughs> sleep is a low priority. Which always is amazing to me anyway, that you can do that. But I just remember we were talking back and forth and then it dawned on me, hold on, there's a three hour time difference between us and she's still chipper. How is this even possible? <laughs> yeah, I'm just used to it. I don't know. I never napped <laughs> as, a, as a toddler, so I'm fine. <laughs> so what else? Um, Should we talk about the big thing? Yeah, we'll talk about the big the thing. Big thing that we the elephant yeah. in the room. The elephant in the room. So... I do not believe that Charlotte Mason falls into the classical tradition. And yet I do. And yet we can yes. still be friends. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. And then also, I know another thing we talked about was I use AO and AO introduces British history, not just American history at the beginning. And so that was another thing that we've done that's like myth methodologically? <laughs> Is that a word? Yes. Yes. And that's been know. different. Right. And I start with, um, I start with American history and this year I'm actually going to be designing my own curriculum because there are enough things that I want to do differently from the other curriculums out there that I decided, um, to just go it myself. Uh, and that that would be the best thing for our do. family. Yeah. I want to hear about it. You better tell us what you do. I'm excited. I have a whole a whole bunch of books stacked up and ready to go through over the next few weeks. Oh, fun. I have to ask really quick, even though this is not what this episode's about, are you just choosing like an era of history and building it out from there? Is that what your starting place is? Well, I'm going off of where we were last year. Okay. So we ended um, just after the American Revolution. And so I'm just going to work my way out from there. And so okay. for history, we're doing American there and we are also in British history and we're going to start world history this year too. Okay. I just had to ask. Yeah. We'll be, we'll be doing lots of history, which I love. And my daughter loves too. So it'll be great. That's what I've loved about a Charlotte Mason education. It's not the only thing. There's a lot to love, but I just remember thinking history was so boring as a child. And I, it really had to do with only being exposed to the textbook snapshot, dry, dusty approach. And mm -hmm. so I just had no idea that it could be interesting we try to give our kids this great education, but it's amazing to me how exciting it is to be a homeschool mom and get to learn all this stuff. It is. Yeah. I, I actually did love history growing up. Every now and then my teachers would tell us about the way that people lived. And so that was what I loved. I hated the textbooks, oh. but I didn't know that we had access to like all the original documents and, you know, people's diaries and all these things except for like Anne Frank. But right. I just thought that they were kind of gone. And this was before, you know, we all had access to the internet. But I just didn't know that you could find those things. So it wasn't until I was an adult that I was like, wow, I can like really learn about history. Uh -huh. and I can, you know, read all these original documents instead of that little excerpt that was in my textbook. Yeah. Oh, 
yeah, that's been fun is to have kids that are ready to read a lot of original documents because we do a lot of that in high school and mm, I guess the second year of junior high. And um, I don't know how excited they are, but I've been really excited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes they roll their eyes. <laughs> For your enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, mom, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> so, yeah. That's our job to embarrass our yeah. children a little That's bit. Right. That's right. It's our number one, our number one priority. <laughs> okay. So we're going to discuss a book today and I think you should introduce it because I only read it because you told me to, which I'm very glad you told me to, but it was your idea. Yes. I, I love it. So the book is called Bandersnatch and it's by uh, Diana. Pavlok Glyer, and the book is about the Inklings. So I found it because it was in my Amazon suggestions. And so um, it caught my attention because I loved the poem Jabberwocky when I was a teenager. I actually, it was one of the few poems I memorized just because I wanted to in high school. So cool. So when I saw what it was about, I was like, oh, that's awesome. I totally have to have that. And I bought it and read it. And then really, I just actually started telling everyone about it. But you're the first (laughs) person who actually bought it and read it. So um, I thought it would be good for you to read and for us to talk about because the Inklings, they disagreed so much, um, and yet they had such strong bonds, and they helped each other along in all of their projects and supported each other, and just really had an, an awesome group, and the, the dynamics were so interesting to me. I thought that you would enjoy it, and that it would be something that was helpful for us, those of us who are in the Charlotte Mason community and working in groups and working toward some kind of harmonious disagreement on ideas. I'm so glad you recommended it because I don't know that I ever would have found this book or even understood why you wanted me to read it just from looking at the title and the synopsis in the back. I guess they do talk about critique, but I I would have read that as if I want to learn about literary critique, I could read this book, which might not have been an area of interest to me, if that makes sense. But then after reading it... Seeing how they're handling these intense discussions in a group setting, it is. It's totally perfect for, you know, those of us that are running in these groups, uh, like where homeschool moms are meeting together and they're trying to run a co-op together. Or they're trying to read books together, that kind of thing. And, you know, what do you do when not everybody sees eye to eye on some idea? It's just been so good. Can I read one? I, yesterday, I forgot I had underlined this, but I found this. Yesterday when I was rereading through all of my underlines, and it's at the very beginning, so it's just on page eight. This is the very beginning where the author herself is giving a little bit of commentary, and she said, she's talking about their disagreements. So she said, I thought that being an inkling was probably helpful and encouraging, but I was starting to see that the group was somehow necessary. And I was thinking through this about how she actually is laying out this argument that they all became better than they were because of this setting of disagreement. Exactly. I just loved that because we often think, I don't know, I was going to ask you if you think this is actually a female thing. Is it more female than male to feel threatened by a variety of opinions or something? I've wondered that because they are all men in the group. Right. You know, we often try to avoid friction in order to feel harmonious or whatever, but it was in working through all of those things that they all became better writers, better thinkers, the whole thing. And it just is exciting to me, the idea that 
by embracing some of that, we're actually improved. Yes. That's also what I loved. Well, and I think with women, maybe because we tend to go the emotional route, instead of focusing on the idea, maybe we focus more on the disagreement Hmm. part. But yes, I loved how they, and yeah, maybe it is a masculine thing. They just like fought each other head on and it was still in good fun. Like there's one point where um, they're talking about C.S. Lewis and Owen Barfield and Lewis says, we went at our talk like a dog fight, yeah. but they were enjoying it. <laughs> so it was fun for them to have these like major disagreements. Um, and that actually, I don't know if we want to jump here, but yeah, do it. They called it the great war. So that's on page 56. That was just the way that they interacted with each other. They had nine years of letters where they were actively disagreeing on a whole bunch of different subjects. And the thing that was so amazing to me is that neither one of them was really trying to convince the other and neither one of them claimed victory over the other, Mm. but it was like, they were just, they were doing it for themselves. I have a quote actually on page 57. It says, by exchanging arguments, listening, disagreeing, making adjustments and modifications, they learned how to ask and answer life's most serious philosophical questions. The impact of this great struggle was profound. Lewis could not have developed as a religious apologist, novelist, or literary historian if he had not trained his intellect through these many years of extended arguments with his friend. Barfield gained even more. He asserts that through these letters, Lewis taught him how to think. Hmm. That was just so eye-opening to me to realize that the conflict can help you to grow in education. We're supposed to be educating ourselves, right? We're supposed to, um, our aim is, you know, self-directed self-education. So instead of trying to like conquer the other person, if you just become more educated and do more research and do more thinking on your own, it doesn't really matter in the end if you convince anyone to your side, so long as you have grown stronger in your own understanding. And I suppose doing all the research, there's a chance you might change your mind. Yeah. But in this case, Lewis and Barfield did not. (laughs) It, It doesn't seem like they really actually gave in on anything. They just both got really strong in their own convictions. I love that it was characterized as good-natured conflict. She says that on page 56. You know, there's this good humor behind it. So they're not being mean or vindictive. I wonder if part of that is because they're not committed to conformity. Their goal was not to come to the same conclusion. That's not what they were setting out to do in the first place. Right. Because they were all so highly educated and so intellectual, if it was more stimulating to them to have that conflict, you know, because they were well beyond like just being receptive mm-hmm. to ideas. Like they, they were ready to fight for their ideas. Okay. So then I have kind of a question about that. If you're in one of our Charlotte Mason groups, our reading groups, and you don't feel really educated, but you do have a place where you're not sure and you think maybe you disagree as you're saying this, I'm wondering if that's why we feel less confident in it, in the disagreements, because we're not necessarily prepared to have the whole discussion. We maybe haven't done all of the reading. And yet there's this nagging thing. Like I know sometimes when I'm talking to someone after I've given a talk and they have this thing that's kind of bothering them about it, it's sparred by something they know. 
a Bible verse or something they've been taught. And sometimes it's just they need help harmonizing those things together. They don't see how they fit. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if maybe that's why sometimes the disagreements get uncomfortable. It's because we don't all feel ready for battle. You know what I mean? We don't all have that confidence. Right, yeah. They had that confidence, but they're all like PhDs. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, so they could definitely take each other on. I think that in that case, if you feel like there's something that you disagree, you should um, be in a setting where you can ask questions. So if you were part of a Charlotte Mason group that didn't allow you to ask questions, honest questions, I think that would maybe not be a healthy environment. Hmm. But you should be able to ask questions. I think you should probably just reserve judgment yeah. until you have done a little bit more research yourself. Because if you if you base an opinion that's unfounded on any actual research, it will be easy for someone to come along and say, "No, I'm sorry, you're just plain wrong." You know, you've you've taken that out of context, or you don't understand this the way it was written, hmm. or um, you know, you're comparing apples to oranges. And then I, I do think it is easy to to feel offended because maybe you did put yourself out there with an idea or an opinion. But again, if it's not actually founded on anything more than your own opinion, the dynamics are not well set up to actually defend Mm -hmm. that opinion. Yeah. And then, and then we just kind of divert to that, to the feelings, to the emotions um, and the hurt feelings when we should be just saying, all right, put that on hold. Let me go research this. I'll get back to you. This whole thing reminds me kind of the scripture that talks about iron sharpening iron. Right. There's this sense of conflict or friction. Maybe it's better to say friction than actual conflict even. That is helpful to both of the people involved in it. And I'm wondering if maybe they're even a better example than I initially realized because of the whole nine years thing. Like this wasn't settled in a day or a week or even a month. It was an ongoing discussion in which both parties were growing and maturing. Sometimes we have to be patient with others and then also with ourselves. Like it's okay to not have a settled opinion on everything. Right. Yes, I agree. And I think as long as your disagreement is focused on those ideas, then we can just detach ourselves a little bit from the emotion of it. And maybe even if we can get away from the idea of of thinking like you are wrong versus I disagree. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If you're thinking in terms of, I think that person is wrong, then your mentality is I'm going to prove them wrong versus just thinking like, I think I'm right. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and I want to research and get stronger in my own grasp of, of the subject so that I can argue better for my yeah. side. I like that. Cause I mean, and even in debate, that's, kind of what debate is about like you're not you're not really trying to like tear apart the other person because you're not going to no one is going to go to your side if you spend all your time tearing apart the other person's ideas they will come to your side if you can talk up your own ideas and make your own ideas understandable and interesting and mm. engaging back to what you said in the beginning about well basically you're quoting Charlotte Mason right all education is self education so Us understanding that you can't really make anybody learn anything. So insisting on our way and that someone just agree with me or just agree with Charlotte Mason 
or disagree with whoever. (laughs) It's like, we, I can't, just like I can't make my child think a certain thing. I can't make my friend think a certain thing either. And so being with each other in this journey of ideas versus trying to force someone to come to this one location right now. I don't know. It just is an interesting thing. It's like we're in disagreement. Sometimes we're trying to circumvent the learning process when the learning process is where everybody is sharpened. Very true. Yeah. Like, so instead of just kind of feeling like everyone should just agree with me because I'm so right, (laughs) we should just let people come to their own understanding, however they're going to do that and in their own time. And I do think we can undermine that if we are either insisting on our own way or not challenging Hmm. anyone. Just kind of saying like, oh, kind of the whole idea, which is so, you know, prominent now is like, well, that's your truth. Well, no, I mean, there's really only one truth. Um, (laughs) and, And then there are matters of opinion. And so if it's a matter of opinion, you need to have your opinion based on something other than the way you feel or your perspective, because that is self-focused. And you know how Mason is always telling us that the children should be looking outside Mm -hmm. of themselves. Well, when you have an opinion that is based on nothing, you're just looking inside of your own self. And really, you should be looking outside yourself to get more understanding so that you're not ignorant of the subject so that you can make a better case for it. And oftentimes, like with Lewis and Barfield, they grew stronger in their own convictions. Sometimes, you know, you might change your mind and then you know, we should be able to tell our friends like, you know what, I researched this, I think you're right. And, you know, that should be like a a good thing. Then you have one more thing in common that you both agree on. You know, that's a good point is if we're too insistent in our own way, in our own way of thinking, it becomes very hard to move away from that. So for example, I remember talking, and I feel very free to tell this story because I can't even remember who this person was now. But it's funny how this happens. But what I'm left with is the memory of what she was saying. And so it was just another person who had a blog that whatever, but this person had aligned herself with a certain philosophy early on, was not Charlotte Mason, of homeschooling and had really spent a lot of time promoting it. Even her Mm -hmm. streams of income got mixed up in that philosophy And then she had to back away from it for a variety of reasons and how hard it was because she had been so insistent in the beginning. Yeah. You know, how hard it was to back away. So I'm thinking holding our ideas with an open hand and acknowledging that life's a journey. We're always growing. It allows us to, you know what I mean? Like to save face later when we change our minds. Right. To say, I don't know. I'm, and part of this is probably my personality because I think we've talked a lot about MBTI, you and I, and I know with I with INTPs, yeah. it's always like, well, I think I'm right, but I could be wrong. Like that's kind of like the hallmark of the personality <laughs> is, is always knowing that you might be wrong. So it's easy for me to say this, but I do think it allows for room for further growth to always say, but I might be wrong. Right. I agree. It leaves room for conversation and the research and all the things that you're talking about yes. to always say, I might I think be wrong. My personality type is more the, no, I'm right. I'm right. Really. I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> but for me to kind of come to an understanding that I'm not always right. And sometimes I do need to kind of 
suck it up and say, actually, remember that time I said that thing? Yeah, I was wrong. (laughs) It's (laughs) good for me. And it is part of my sanctification process to understand that, that I'm not right. And I think if you come to that point where you thought you were right and you're getting a lot of pushback, at some point you have to back off. Otherwise, it's going to get ugly. You know what I mean? So if you mm-hmm. if you don't acknowledge when you might be wrong, if you don't believe it's even possible that you could be wrong, you're going to fight so hard that you'll have no other recourse than to get personal. And I think that that's the danger in all of these, you know, discussions and and in conflict is you can't ever get personal and attack the person for who they are. It should only always be about ideas. Right. So I can dislike your idea and still love you. Exactly. And that's how we end up with ugly things like church splits, right? Where something that's not important, it's not a salvation issue. It's not, I mean, because there are lines we don't cross, right? Like there is some such a thing as Christian orthodoxy, for example. So there's lines that we don't cross. But lots of times when you encounter someone who's been through a church split, it was it was not about orthodoxy. It was mm-hmm. about my style of worship music, or I don't like the pastor's wife or what I mean. So we've allowed these like secondary issues to become uh, divisive and it gets so ugly and it causes permanent damage. And it's just so sad because there really just wasn't room for imperfect people to coexist. Well, and isn't it, isn't it in Ephesians that it, it talks about that? Um, oh gosh, I want to say it's Ephesians four something, but that we need to put up with each other, bearing with each other. Mm-hmm, yeah. That's part of it is we don't have to like everything that everyone does, you know, in our church family, in our Charlotte Mason group, in our household. Um, but we do need to be loving to them. You know, um, we need to be respectful of them and their opinions and their choices. And as long as they're not crossing those lines of orthodoxy, there's so much freedom and there are so many like, you know, gray areas that we shouldn't be putting our convictions on someone else in a heavy handed way because it, it'll just, you know, turn around and bite you. Yeah. It does more damage than good. Well, and it's so much easier for people to live convictions that they've come to on their own instead of convictions yes. that have been like externally pushed upon them. For example, Jesus talking about how the Pharisees were heaping burdens upon people. And exactly. some of that was they were like adding their own personal convictions to what scripture taught and placing those upon the people. And it was too much for them. They couldn't carry all of that. I always think about this, like with screen time, like we as a family had a very strong conviction about screen time, which I won't go into here. Um, but I've always felt very uncomfortable even talking with other people about it because I don't want other people to feel any pressure by, from my own conviction. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a decision that each family has to make, and each family is not my family. <laughs> right. And our convictions may not even be a good fit for someone else's family. It probably aren't. So I hadn't thought about this, but a lot of the mommy wars are basically forcing our convictions upon each other. Yeah. Really. That is absolutely true. And I, I think um, within the Charlotte Mason community, I think that there is some trouble there on, you know, what is the right way to do something. And if you are just learning and if you're new to the whole philosophy of Charlotte Mason, you're oftentimes going to default to what someone else says. Hmm. And sometimes that's helpful. 
And sometimes it's just easier for you and in a good way to do that. But when it gets to the point where it it is heaping burdens on you and you don't have, you know, the the time or the energy um, or the ability to focus on that area for yourself and to learn it well and to understand it, then it might be better to just put that to the side for a little while, Mm. get rid of the burden, do what you can do, and then tackle that area when you're ready for it, when it won't feel like a burden and when you won't feel uh, like you just have to do this thing because of someone else telling you that you really have to do that thing or you're not actually Charlotte Mason. Right. Sorry, that made <laughs> me laugh. In trouble like, for that one. None of us. I'm like, well, I always laugh because I'm like, because none of us are actually Charlotte Mason because she's dead. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, and none of us are actually doing it 100% right because we can't. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. They're well, it's hard. funny. Even to, I don't know if you've read some of the uh, her uh, uh, the alumni magazine, but even then you can tell yes. they're not able to actually do everything. And some of it's yes. kind of whining, actually. <laughs> yes, some of it is. Yes, but, I read one on handicrafts that was super whiny. <laughs> oh, really? That's so funny. Because um, I yeah. remember Charlotte, uh, somewhere I read a comment where Charlotte Mason kind of called them ungrateful, I think was the word she used. Yes. And I was thinking, but at the end of the day, it's because their philosophy was bumping up against the inconveniences of reality. Like one of the things I read was, you know, this timetable says we're supposed to do such and such at this time, but next door they're doing music and all the sounds coming through the wall and no one can hear me talk. And, you know, oh and it's like, oh, that's a real <laughs> reality, right? The, like, right. Well, one thing that I learned with my kids, they, okay, on the schedule, they have like a little recess break planned in there. Okay. If I give my kids 15 minutes of recess right in the middle of lessons, they are not going to come back happily. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're not going to have a good attitude when they come back. So it's better to just skip it and be done 15 minutes earlier. Yeah. I was the same way. I tried to give kids time Because I'll talk to people who that is the best thing they've ever done. You know, they say, oh, go out and jump on the trampoline for 15 minutes. And then my kids come in so ready to face the rest of the day. And I'm like, I lose them. They will not come back. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But but I can give them a snack. And I find that that helps. But nobody's allowed to go outside. Yes, that helps us. So they get a 10-minute snack break. But I don't think Charlotte Mesa was giving a snack break. But I figured out we had some blood sugar issues going on. And that I was actually... doing way better with school once I realized I just need to feed people at about 10 o'clock in the morning and that's okay. That's pretty much what we do too. And we just read some poems and um, do some lighter things during the snacks and have a little conversation. But those things too, when, when you have released yourself from other people's convictions, even, you know, even the Charlotte Mason schedule, when you've released yourself from following it to the letter and uh, making it like a legalist uh, perspective, you are free to do what you need to do to get things done. And and also I would say that would even count as research. If you tried it and it really didn't work for your family, then you can say, okay, I see how that works for some people. Like you said, I see how that's wonderful for some people. It's not wonderful for us. So we're going to not have recess in the middle of the day. <laughs> right. For, yes. Because we tried it. Exactly. Before we went on a side tangent about recess, <laughs> we could talk about um, the Hugo Dyson thing. Do you remember that? Yes. Oh, you know what? 
Just dawned on me. We didn't actually do who are the Inklings. <laughs> Oops. Maybe we should do that really quick just so we're all on the same page. Reading the book, there was actually more of them than I realized. Mm-hmm. I think I knew C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and Charles Williams. I think those were the only ones I was really sure of in my own brain. So do you want to explain, though, what the Inklings was and what they did? And Sure. Was, is it were? Yes, the Inklings were. Um, <laughs> I'm like, were. is this plural or singular? <laughs> were, you're right. Well, the Inklings were <laughs> a, a writing group. So they they came together. Um, I think they would meet in C.S. Lewis's offices and they would work on their various writing projects. Um, it began with Lewis and Tolkien, who, as they developed their friendship, they would write poems and things and send them to each other to get feedback. And I, I wonder if it was difficult to get maybe some good, honest feedback that was both uh, encouraging but also critical. Hmm. So they gradually started adding more friends to their group. And what it became is that once a week, they would read the different things that they were working on to each other out loud. and then. After a piece was read, everyone would give their feedback. They would both encourage and criticize minutia. <laughs> um, they were yeah. very free with their criticism and very um, open. And it was just really interesting, too, to see how much the Inklings actually shaped the writing of each one of the writers in the group and how much they all became better. And even, I mean, for Lord of the Rings, it would have been completely different um, and probably a lot more silly if it hadn't been for the help of the Inklings. Oh, yeah. To get it focused on the action instead of on Hobbit talk. <laughs> Do you remember <laughs> that part? Tolkien <laughs> talks about how he prefers Hobbit talk. <laughs> and C.S. Lewis told him, no, you need, they need to do something. <laughs> I love the part where he starts writing, it's not the Hobbit, it was the, I think it was the beginning of the Lord of the Rings, though the, she doesn't call it that in the book. But where he talks about, yeah. I've started writing another Hobbit story and it's kind of getting out of control. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, because he just wanted to just have them, you know, eat meals all day long and, and talk about silly things. That was his favorite part. <laughs> Which he was a Hobbit at heart. I love that. But he just. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, and then from there, too, they also had a. Uh, it wasn't officially part of the Inklings, but they would meet at a local pub. Oh, that's right. The Bird and Baby. It was the Eagle and Child, but they called it the Bird and Baby. And so they would meet at the pub and that was more open and free to kind of whoever came around. So they would just have their beer and their tea and yell a lot, it sounded like, <laughs> and have a good time. It was like a party. <laughs> Which that's so, it's, that's so my perception of, British society, the yelling part. Cause when I see, yeah. um, well, we just watched a movie about Winston Churchill last weekend, my husband and I, they have, you know, scenes from parliament and I'm like, how can you even think because one side's yelling and the other side's yelling. And then the speaker's down in front, still trying to deliver his speech. And I'm just like, this is chaotic. <laughs> and yet yeah. <laughs> Fighting with words seems to be a very um, British tradition. <laughs> Definitely. And it seemed very lively. Uh-huh. Oh, I had a good quote on what they were doing. Yeah, it was their Thursday night meetings. Tolkien wrote this. Okay, this was an argument between Lewis and Barfield. 
The result was a most amusing and highly contentious evening on which had an outsider eavesdropped, he would have thought it was a meeting of fell enemies hurling deadly insults before drawing their guns. <laughs> oh, it's just been so fun, doesn't it? <laughs> it really did. I wish I could have been there to watch that. Oh my that. gosh, me too. And at another point, it says that they that people probably see them and think that they're like drinking too much and um, talking about like body things when they're actually uh, yelling about theology <laughs> and arguing over <laughs> theology <laughs> and having oh, tea. <laughs> yes. It's great fun. And I, I do feel like, oh, if we Americans could step away from this insistence on conformity which I think we've exported this culture. So I don't think it's just a problem in, in the United States now. But I definitely feel like watching over the last 30 years, there's been, not that I'm 30 years old, but anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> paying attention. <laughs> right, exactly. Just thinking about there's more and more of a drive to conform. Mm-hmm on so many levels. And now you just have to walk in lockstep with whatever the supposed prevailing sentiment is. And if you question anything, you're this evil, awful person. You know, you dared to have your own thought. <laughs> right. I mean, we're seeing that more in politics than we are in philosophy. But I feel like if we're not careful, it comes to philosophy too, because it's becoming our culture. Yes, definitely. There's the really loud people who insist that everyone else is wrong and anyone who disagrees with them is evil. And that's just yes. toxic. I love that they're having this loud, brutal argument and they walked away the best of friends. It's such a beautiful tribute to real humans having an interaction that you're allowed to use your brain and think for yourself and that's okay. I've been um, rereading through ourselves, the first book again. and so. I was just reading a little bit about imagination. And when I was reading it, it struck me that in school, in like public school, which is what I went through, imagination is not really something that is fostered because you just have to learn what's in the book. So you just have to learn the facts. Mm. And so I've wondered if that is something too that keeps people from forming their own opinion or feeling like it's okay to have their own opinion. Because if we don't grow up in the habit of using our imagination and of just learning the facts, learning the facts is a type of conformity. You know what I mean? Because you're not supposed to oh, think about those facts. You're just supposed to know those facts. And you're not supposed to use those facts to make any decisions. You're just supposed to know them. And then someone else who is smarter than you makes the decisions that you then go along with. So I guess you, even in politics, you just choose which side, and then that right. side makes all your choices versus making all the individual choices yourself. Right. Yeah, that's my little commentary. I don't know if you've read much of the literature about gifted and talented education, but I was reading something the other day. I can't remember. It was from, I don't know. There's a few people I follow on Facebook that write about, I mean, they're talking about schools, <laughs> but it's interesting to hear some of the parents' comments about you know, they have a child that is really advanced in some subject area. And when the child dares to have his or her own thought, the teacher's like terribly offended by that. And they're just crushed. Wow. So the child's trying to have an honest sorting through something and the teacher cannot handle it. 
And it's just so sad to read some of the stories. And I mean, these are parents. I don't know anybody like this personally, but they're, they're talking kids with really super high IQs, like 160s, like they're profoundly gifted. They weren't treated as persons. They weren't given the respect of persons. It was just how dare you have your own thought. It was so sad to me because I hadn't connected this with imagination, but really that was part of what was going on in these stories was that the children were trying to (laughs) science of relations. They were trying to like take what they had learned and connect it to something else or think through an extrapolation of it. I mean, it was probably too much for the teacher in that moment. Mm -hmm. What was interesting to me was the response was to be offended. Like the teacher didn't look at that child and see, wow, there's some potential here. You know, maybe I have the honor of teaching the next Einstein. Right. <laughs> they didn't think that. They just were just offended and wanted to crush that child into conformity with the rest of the classroom. Well, that's probably a difference of philosophy with the teacher, like believing that his job is to impart his knowledge and impart his wisdom. And the child is only receptive rather than, you know, in our Charlotte Mason philosophy, we're learning along with the children. We are guiding them along. And we're leaving them to sort through the knowledge for themselves. We just present it, but we're not like, you know, ramming it down their throats and forcing them to believe what we believe and know what we know. We're just leading them along. And so then what you said was perfect, really. Like when we talk about Charlotte Mason groups, the mothers deserve the same kind of respect. Exactly. So the freedom to form their own thoughts and not be in lockstep becomes, I don't know, I feel like that rises to the surface because if children are persons and mothers are persons, then the same logic applies. Part of this reminds me of um, when Charlotte Mason's talking about the way of the will, there's a place where she talks about there's this delicate balance that we're supposed to maintain because children are supposed to be terrified of doing wrong, like of the consequences of falling into grave sin, just the way we do. Mm -hmm. We know we're aware that there are dire consequences if we cross certain lines in our lives. But she talks about this freedom, like they are free to go in the way of right living, like this whole world is open to them. And then they know that they cannot, you know, they're not free to lie, or they're not free to steal or, you know, that kind of, and um, she talks about that being a delicate balance. And I feel like there's a sense in which, you know, we can aim for that too, with, with our friendships, even not just with groups, my friend is free to go in the ways of right living. And there are very few things that I actually have the right to hold her to and say, this is a line you cannot cross. Right. You know, and that would be like morality issues and then theological orthodoxy. um, If it's a Christian friend, Mm -hmm. but you know, beyond that, (laughs) you know, she's free to go in the ways of right living. She's free to think her own thoughts. It's just, it's a beautiful thing to see how these men handled their friendships. Yes, and how they were respectful of those differences um, instead of trying to conform everyone to be just like they are. Which is probably a good um, transition to bring us where you wanted us to go, which was to Mr. Dyson, the man who ruined the Inklings. (laughs) If we can call him that. Yes. (laughs) As we've said, uh, there was a lot of disagreement and a lot of criticism, but it was for the benefit of the author, and this is during their Inklings meetings. Um, and so there were people who, who didn't like everything that the other people were reading. Specifically, there were people who didn't care for Lord of the Rings, but they were still respectful of their friend um, and they didn't 
treat him badly. So if we think in terms of ideas, like they didn't care for the ideas that he was presenting in Lord of the Rings, but they cared for Tolkien as their friend and as a person. So they listened politely along with everyone else. I mean, I don't know, maybe some of them wouldn't go if they knew he was going to be reading that day. <laughs> but for the most part, every everyone, they put up with it or they loved it, except for Hugo Dyson. The quote is, he was loud in manner and derogatory in his comments. So he actually was attacking Tolkien personally, and he was rude and obnoxious, and he would interrupt, like he would, they were saying he would make just like rude and grumbling noises while Tolkien Aww. was reading. So it got to a point where he didn't even want to read. And when Hugo Dyson would show up, if he was in the middle of reading and Dyson walked into the room, he would just close up his manuscript and sit down. And he couldn't be convinced to go back up, even if other people, um, and I know it mentioned C.S. Lewis in particular, would basically just tell Dyson that he needed to shut up. But Tolkien just wouldn't. Dyson just changed the dynamics and ruined it and took out the spirit that was in it by making it personal and making it mean. It's so sad. I was looking on page 70. It just um, said that Dyson started to veto Tolkien's readings. Yes. So I don't know how, I don't know exactly what that process was like, <laughs> but it just says that after he began to do that, the Thursday night meetings began to wind down and attacking these readings. Dyson was attacking the very reason for the group. In limiting, limiting the participation of one of its members, Dyson eroded its spirit. It is one thing to criticize an author. It's another to shut him down. There is a difference between conflict and contempt. Dyson delivered an axe blow to the root of the tree. The inklings were shaken and they never quite recovered. Yep, that is the quote I had. And it is, it's so sad that that's how it yeah. ended from the attack, the personal attack, the contempt. And I guess for, for us, there's a lesson there. You know, when our criticism of other people's thoughts and ideas turns to contempt, then we're just, we're creating rifts that can't be crossed. Um, like we're drawing lines in the sand and it's undermining our lovely Charlotte Mason community. Yeah. It does kind of remind me of where scripture warns against you know, the divisive person, the person who is out there trying to cause division. And I think, you know, it's easy to look at Dyson and condemn him, but we can all be that person. We can all have the thing that, you know, it's not an essential, but it just drives us completely crazy. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and I feel like when I read this, it made me sad. But when I read it the second time, I thought, you know, this is a warning. It's a warning to me to not get so passionate against this thing that I love or, or about this thing that I love or whatever to the point where I'm going to shut other people down and ruin beautiful friendships or a beautiful group. Or I mean, it can happen in a variety of contexts. It can be so tempting. Like, I think we all have one or two issues where we're tempted to be him, yes, you know, definitely. you know, we wonder how many more things the Inklings might have contributed had he not eroded that because it seems like a lot of their best writing was done Definitely. during that time. And I do think it is important, like you said, to recognize that we could all be Dyson. And I know for my particular personality type, um, which is INTJ, I can be very passionate <laughs> and, and get really worked up. And for my part, even though I appear really, you know, worked up, 
I'm not taking anything personally and I'm not meaning any personal offense, Mm -hmm. but for someone who is of a different personality type and who isn't as um, outspoken and maybe loud and obnoxious as I am, it can be too much and it can crush their ideas, make them feel crushed, even though I didn't mean it to. And so I have actually been working on that um, and been trying to tone it down a few notches. Like I I've, you know, would never actually say anything mean, but it's important to be sensitive to other people and to the way that they are and to kind of, you know, look for those social cues, I guess, yeah. of people and, and try to match them instead of conquer. Right. <laughs> you know, we want to just um, match and then maybe push a little. Like if someone asks a question, uh, like in our, you know, Charlotte Mason group, I might just say, well, this is what Charlotte Mason said you do what you're going to do with that. This is what she said. Um, and you know, you can, you can research it further or you can research other areas and see if you still think that what she said holds weight. But I agree with Mason, right. <laughs> you know, and just try to tone it down instead of attacking what the person is saying, just again, presenting, well, these are the ideas I believe in. Yeah. You can do what you want with those ideas. I like that because it's respectful of the other person. You know, I, when you were saying, you know, realizing that people can be, I don't know, I guess intimidated by you or whatever, when you're feeling passionate, I was thinking about, um, I've been rereading Pilgrim's Progress again. Well, I guess it's actually book two. So it's Christiana's journey, but mm-hmm. there's just a number of weak people in Christiana's. So there's, there's the one that's crippled. And then there's little faith who just struggles with trusting and all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting to me with the bold warriors, like they'll go off and fight the giants and slay them and put up a warning. And, and yet they're so tender with the cripple and with little faith and these different. And I was thinking there is room for context and saying like, if you are a really passionate person, I'm a really passionate person, but this person right here cannot handle the full weight of that. (laughs) You know what I mean? And and that's okay. (laughs) Right. Right. I guess I appreciated how in Pilgrim's Progress. And I mean, these are issues of even of essentials, but recognizing this nugget of faith in little faith and then nurturing that and carrying little faith along without condemnation and just being careful around that person. We all know the person who has a harder time handling those kinds of things. And maybe another aspect of it is to make sure groups or friendships are a safe place for them too. You know, because you and I can both be very passionate, and <laughs> but it doesn't just have to be only passionate people can come and, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Anyway, I just think about being tender with people who need it to be tender, or sometimes we just need it for a time in our lives. Like we can't handle it right now. Right. I think too, then it kind of goes the other way. So if you are a very passionate person who is new, um, like I was saying before, if you're new to the philosophy or you have formed an opinion, but you haven't researched it yet, then it would probably be wise to just hold back until you are there mm-hmm. with your understanding. It's like, um, you know, zeal without knowledge. If you have the zeal without knowledge and you come against someone who has the zeal and they have knowledge, yeah, it's not going to go well for the one without the knowledge, yes. you know, and then that can <laughs> yes. create some, oh. some conflict and strife. It's true. Uh, well, and it's always funny to look back. <laughs> yes. Coming to Charlotte Mason can sometimes be like a conversion experience. And so we have those 
especially people that convert like in teenage years or whatever, they'll tell stories about how they just completely embarrassed themselves because they were so zealous. They were, but they just went around oh, about it in a way that was just not going to work and was not, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I forget, there was a book I read one time that talked about a guy trying to be more Catholic than the Pope. Yeah. It was a similar kind of thing. You know, it was just like this early zeal was what he was talking about. And so recognizing for those of us that are new that there is such a thing as early zeal and it can be dangerous and or embarrassing. Yes. (laughs) So it's good to protect ourselves against that. Like just knowing that about humanity, that it's true of people can be helpful going in. You know, Charlotte Mason talks about having a level of self-knowledge is really protective. Mm -hmm. That's probably an area where it will be protective to us to recognize because I always do this. I read a new book and I get all excited and then it's tempered later. Right. So I try to be careful and not, I used to get really excited about a curriculum. If I had, I can, you know, like if I bought a new math curriculum or something and I would write about it in a review type way. So not just we're using this, mm-hmm. but in a review type way early in the first term. And I've realized now after blogging for so many years, how completely dangerous that is. And hopefully I haven't led too many people astray, <laughs> but, but to contrast like this year for biology, I did not write a review of the book until we were done with the book. Because do I really have enough knowledge to go out there and recommend something to someone when I haven't finished it? And I haven't taught through it myself. And I have, you know, because it's not even about reading it. It's actually going through it with the student. And anyway. And then that's the same with the reverse side. If you totally disagree with something, whether it's curriculum or philosophy or, you know, just some practice, if you um, are very vocal about how you disagree with it or how you think it's wrong, but you haven't actually tried it you know, it might come around later that you're like, oh, that was actually really good. And I know for me, um, you know, starting off with Charlotte Mason, there were a few areas where I was like, I don't think that she really got that right. So I'm going to do something else. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, you know what? I think Mason was right all along. And I wish I had started (laughs) in that place because now I have to go backward. So right. Yeah. And thankfully, I didn't blog about any of that or, or really talk about it to anyone. So I don't have to say what it was. You don't have to publicly eat your words so much. Exactly. I just yeah. know for myself. Yeah. I have a couple of things I finally took down because I was like, wow, people are finding stuff I said 12 years ago and asking me about it now. And that's just really dangerous. Well, and that is what's so. bad about like, you know, social media yeah. and, and all the things that we have access to now is that it doesn't always show the way that we have grown and changed if people are going yeah. back too far. Because we really, we should be changing and it's okay if we change our minds and we should be doing things differently now than we were doing them, you know, even a year ago. Right. We, we should always be growing, always be doing better, always be learning ourselves. Yeah. There's a section in the epilogue that I thought was really good to touch on. And it was the section, it's on 165, but it talks about criticize, but don't silence. And this was even good for me to think about with how I go about uh, giving feedback to maybe a paper that my high schooler wrote, or sometimes in my Plutarch class, there is a bit of a debate or something. And I'll give a little bit of feedback back at the end. I I don't think that I silence people or at all, but it just seemed really good to keep in mind some of these principles that she brings out because she talks about being brutally frank. And honestly, I think I struggle sometimes with not saying everything I 
I feel because mm-hmm. I or everything that I think about this because I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. But then actually I didn't challenge my students enough. Right. If that makes sense. Yes. There's this wisdom of trying to find that perfect place of I said this much, but I didn't go overboard. It's hard for me. She kind of repeats some of what we already read about Dyson earlier on, but she talks about being a safe place. So then she says, after Dyson eroded the spirit of the Inklings, it's no longer safe to share rough drafts, to share far-fetched ideas. And I was thinking about that because I can have crazy thoughts sometimes. And my husband used to kind of shut me down. And now he's learned to just roll his eyes because he knows I'll back away from it in about half an hour when I realize how dumb it was <laughs> that I said it. But I was thinking like he's become this safe place for me to, to share my far-fetched ideas and how we can provide that for our friends and the people in our group. And that like, it's okay to hear this dumb thing they just said, maybe even in silence, just to let them sort it out. You right, know? Yeah. I think of that with Charlotte Mason sometimes and about how sometimes she didn't say, I mean, she knew when to hold mm-hmm. back too, you know, but she goes on and says, when creative people encounter thoughtful critique, they feel empowered. When they encounter dismissal, they stop taking risks. They shut down. This idea that we could maybe shut down someone else's learning and growing because we've become discouraging. I think it's an important thing to avoid if we can. Definitely. Not that we won't make mistakes. Yeah. But Well, which again means we need to be sensitive to what other people need. So whether that's our children or that's our friend. We need to be in touch with who they are, with their personhood, so that we can respond in a way that is helpful to them. Um, and for some people, you know, maybe that would be a very strong criticism. Like I, yeah. it's toward the beginning of the book, but I loved how um, Tolkien had written a poem. And so it was the first one, I believe, that he sent to C.S. Lewis for criticism. And so first, first C.S. Lewis wrote about how much he loved it and how wonderful he thought it was. And then afterward, a couple weeks later, he wrote a very, very thorough criticism, but he did it in such a way that he wrote as if he was several college professors criticizing specific lines, but he did it in a way that was a bit funny and like over the top, but still got his message across. I think that was the point when they really started to become close friends. But I think he was, um, you know, he wanted to, be helpful in the sense of giving a good criticism to help Tolkien to be a better writer, but he also was sensitive to his friend's needs and his feelings. So he softened the blow mm-hmm. while still uh, giving him, you know, that, that strong feedback. I loved that just because it even shows that he took extra time. I mean, it would have been so much easier to do one letter and have it all be simple bullet points, like here's the places you need to improve the end. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, he took the time to give praise first. And then he took the time to do this really creative critique. I mean, all of that uh, was, um, I mean, and I guess it is like when we spend the extra time to do something like that, we're actually giving honor to someone else's soul. Like we're handling their soul with care. Sometimes that does take time. It's could be more expedient to just shut people down. Mm -hmm. With that too, I loved the the word that she had for the group members who were encouragers. She called them resonators. Mm, and I yeah. thought that was just like a really kind of cool way to look at it, that their ideas resonate with you. You know, you're feeding off of each other, um, you know, encouraging and building them up. And then they're giving back in their creativity. 
So I just love that. I forgot about that yeah, one. That cool. is a good word. Very cool. And you know, isn't that what we want? Like we want to be resonators. And even in like our Charlotte Mason group, even though it's not a um, necessarily a creative group, like we're not writing or, or doing anything like that. We are, you know, sharing our experiences with our children and with the different things we're trying to do. So we want to be encouraging each other and building each other up, but also, you know, offering good advice that is based on hopefully Charlotte Mason <laughs> or, or, you know, based on an actual um, plumb line and encouraging and, and feeding off each other. And, and it just goes, you know, what you put in, you also get out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That point of resonance. I feel like that's how a lot of people end up with Charlotte Mason is they resonate with her. Like mm-hmm. They read her and it's like, oh, these are some of my own thoughts, but expressed way better. Yes. <laughs> than, you know, yes. Or this is what I would have loved as a child had I known and had my parents known or whatever. I feel like there's this, definitely that sense. Yeah. Which, by the way, there was another theme in here and we don't really have time to get into it because we've already been recording for quite a while. But she does go on and on about praise and about how much part praise played in it. So it wasn't like the group just argued all the time. Right. There was a time of respectful listening and sharing. And then they actually said, good job. This is fantastic. This is amazing. And so they were blurbs for each other, you know, like marketing blurbs for each other's books and tributes to each other's work and all sorts of stuff. And I was thinking, that's a good thing to remember that disagreement. I, I don't know how to put this. It's more fruitful in an atmosphere of love and appreciation. You know, like if I just disagree with some random Absolutely. guy on the street that I just met, like that's not the same as disagreeing in the context of a healthy environment where everybody loves each other and they want to spend time together and they appreciate each other and they're willing to say, hey, that's great. All of that was then the context for the disagreement. Right. Seems important. Well, and I think along with that too, just the idea that they created that safe space and they did it very intentionally. So I don't know how Dyson got in there, but they didn't just let anybody in the Inklings. You know, it was by invitation only and they actually voted on who was allowed. And I think that's kind of important to understand. Like we want to be inclusive, but there can come a point when you're so inclusive that the atmosphere is affected Mm. and then you're unable to to have that positive atmosphere that makes everybody feel safe um, and comfortable, like they can say certain things. Um, so it's important to establish that atmosphere first um, and spend the time, you know, in developing those relationships. Yeah. First, and which, you know, from for my part, I really like small groups, like our Charlotte Mason group stays at the most around like 10 families. And mm-hmm. we've had, I think there are seven families that have been around since the beginning. And it's awesome. I mean, we are so comfortable together and our kids are, you know, so close um, that we really have a good, comfortable, stable atmosphere so that when we do disagree on subjects, it's not a problem at all. It's kind of fun. Occasionally we agree so much. It's kind of of fun sometimes to to have um, that banter a little bit when we very occasionally disagree on something. You know, for years and years and years, I had this co-leader who is just a question everything kind of person. (laughs) Like she pretty much initially disagrees with everything. And she's so sweet and likable that it wasn't 
like she's this person I wouldn't rather, rather be around. Like I loved being around her, but some of the best discussions to this day, because my Charlotte Mason group, I think we've been together for about nine years now. Not exactly the same people because people have moved away yeah. and new people have come and taken their place, you know, I mean, but generally, so she was there for, I don't know, probably six of those years. And she would apologize to me sometimes like, I'm sorry, I'm so difficult and blah, blah, blah. The best discussions were actually spurred on from questions that she asked because she didn't just swallow everything whole because she insisted on questioning it and thinking it through. And she just was a really good thinker. And she wasn't just going to believe something because so-and-so said so, regardless of what book we were reading, because sometimes it would be Lori Bestfader because we were reading Living Page or Mm -hmm. like it wouldn't directly be Charlotte Mason. I never feel like she was comfortable with that part of herself. But to this day, when I see her, I try to thank her and just say, you know, you asked the hard questions that we didn't even know to ask because we don't think like you. There was so much fruitful discussion because you dared to question, right. you know, the authority in the room and why they said what they said and what they really meant by that. And it was so, it was so good. And so sometimes as women, we can be so afraid of someone rocking the boat a little bit. And yet looking back on those years with this person there, it was so good. And part of it was because it was congenial. I mean, she's very good humored and all that. So it was never argumentative, but it was just such good conversation that came from that. Well, and I wonder if, for her if, if part of the reason she wasn't comfortable with that part of herself is because maybe in school or at, you know, some adult somewhere in her life made her feel like she shouldn't be asking those questions. Um, so then, you know, she yeah. had to because it was part of who she was, but she just always felt like she shouldn't, you know, which is just wrong because right. we should always ask questions. And I, I think sometimes too, along those same lines, because a lot of us who have come to Charlotte Mason as adults who didn't have anything like the kind of education we're giving our children, we sometimes feel like maybe we just aren't smart enough to figure those things out for ourselves, or we just don't know enough. And we do. I mean, we absolutely do. We are totally capable. If we believe our children are capable, then of course we should believe that we are capable of figuring some things out and and asking questions and really pursuing the answers and and doing research on our own. I love that you said that because there are just a certain percentage of people who are flirting with Charlotte Mason, but they doubt their ability to come to a point of understanding. They doubt their ability to read her and understand her on her own. And it's just so sad to me because I didn't understand everything I read when I read her in the beginning. I mean, I had to grow into that. So the assumption that we have to be able to get it all immediately, I hate to think that it's stopping people, you know, from Yes. Being brave and facing and working through. I mean, because that's another form of conflict, actually, is when you're fighting through a really hard book that you don't completely get. Right. That's a great point. I mean, that's how you raise your reading level, right? (laughs) It's just doing it. Yes. (laughs) Um, Even though you only got about half of what they said, usually half of what they said is super valuable. So and then you can read it again, of course, which is what I had to do with Charlotte Mason. I just started back over at the beginning of the book I just read because it was home education. It was the first book I ever read. Now, all I got out of it was that I should go outside. So I <laughs> took my four-year-old outside and I started reading it again <laughs> while I was outside. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, I think even, even with that, like how one should read the volumes um, was something that for me held me back because when I was first reading, I don't even know where this was coming from, but the general idea that I got was that I should be reading it slowly 
and that I should be like taking so many notes. And um, for me, it was holding me back. Like I couldn't see the big picture going so slow. And so after a while, I was like, oh, this is not working for me. And so I just started to just like read, you know, at my own comfortable pace. And after I had, you know, first I, I read home education and after I had got through that, I was like, okay, this is starting to make sense to me now. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, then I started to go back to, you know, to the different chapters so that I could work on certain areas, but I just need to read in bigger chunks to see the bigger picture and then go back yeah. and have a look, a closer look. I hadn't even thought about that, that the pressure to do it in a really studious manner. What you said reminds me of, I don't know if you've read Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book. I have not. Because he talks about when you want to read a book in a studious way, like you're going to approach this from a scholarly way. One of the things he talks about is doing this initial reading or even two that's like a fast flyover. Mm-hmm. So the first one might even be that you didn't even read it. You went through and read all of the titles and subtitles to get a sense of the structure, which with some of Charlotte Mason's earlier books could just be the detailed table of contents, really. Yeah, that's true. And then the next time was like a fast reading and he's pretty much like, don't take notes, don't whatever, just get the general sense. And then you dig in and do your studious with your note taking and your thinking and your trying to synthesize with other things you know or any of that stuff comes later and I thought that's kind of what you're saying really yeah is yeah. that you needed the, to see that big initial thing before you could dig into the details sometimes I make the mistake of approaching any book but just trying to go straight to deep deep note taking and then at the end I'm like I got some of this really deep stuff but I actually couldn't tell you what the whole book was about <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's somehow exhausting lost, to me yeah like, <laughs> Somehow lost the big picture in that process. <laughs> well, I think too, another thing that I guess I've had to figure this out for myself is to understand the difference between myself having been educated, you know, through public school, the way I was educated versus mm -hmm. the way I'm teaching my children. So for them, you know, Mason says that they should only be reading it once and, and then they give their narration and that we go slowly over, you know, a lot of books all through the school year. Well, first off, that is school. And also they have been trained from the beginning because I, you know, I started yeah. with, you know, my oldest daughter when she was six, we started with Charlotte Mason. That's all she's ever known. Whereas I have not been trained with narration. Right. I, you know, I never did that. And so my process is a little bit different. I'm um, even like taking notes during the sermon on Sunday. I take notes really just to keep my hand busy so that I can be focused. Yeah. And I don't often look at my notes again, but that is my habit. And that is what I've always done. And that's how I pay attention. Um, if I was to just sit and listen to an entire sermon without note taking, my thoughts wander. Yeah. <laughs> because then I immediately have to go pick up children from their Sunday school class. And then we have our fellowship after church. If I were to only do that, I have no time for narration. I'll lose the sermon compared to writing it down as we go, I retain it. Yeah. Um, so that is, you know, my process that I've had to understand and, and accept. Right. Because I wasn't educated Charlotte Mason style. Totally. Okay. This is so interesting because I actually had this conversation with my 16 year old, I don't know, a while back. I had trained my kids to take notes in church as part of training them to pay attention to the sermon. So it started when they were little where I would say like, you know, listen and draw one thing that you heard. So if he's preaching on a story about Jesus, they might draw the woman by the well or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. what I mean? but it was more just trying to get them to realize the sermon was for them. 
because I think they thought it was for big people (laughs) when they were little. So I was training them to take notes, but not really thinking about how that meshed with them being trained to do things like narrate as part of their Charlotte Mason education. So for all these years, they've done that. And I don't require them to take notes the way I take notes because I do exactly what you're saying for the exact same reasons. I think that's a very common side effect of public school education. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it was interesting because my oldest came to me and said he really wanted to stop taking notes in church. He felt like it was inhibiting his ability to pay attention. Wow. And I was like, really? Um, Okay, that's that's fine. I mean, first of all, I'm not going to boss you around about that because you're 16. Yeah. <laughs> but um but secondly, this is fascinating to me and I told him I take notes because I'm paying t- and he just said, "I just feel like if I just listen to the whole thing and I just kind of go over it in my mind before we leave, I'll be fine and I'll be able to pay more attention." It's just all all this stuff's distracting and I was like, "Oh my goodness. He's just his education is so ingrained. Like I couldn't listen to a whole sermon and narrate it back to you." Yeah. <laughs> I, I just couldn't, I couldn't listen for that long. And with comprehension and remember from beginning to end, but them having been trained to narrate with books that were read aloud to them, it's just totally different. Wow. That is fascinating. It really was. And so he is, he's really enjoying himself just sitting in sermon with his Bible. And I thought, wow, yeah, that's probably how it should be, but I am not capable, you know? So I know myself and I don't want to start because I'll even get tired and start falling asleep or something. And I don't want to do that either. I mean, I want to be there. I want to be present. Right. It's the weirdest thing because I don't actually think I'm that drowsy of a person, but I just am so undertrained that that's what happened. But anyway, you're so right because I'm seeing that now in my oldest child. I had another one come and say the similar thing because she saw what he did. And we talked about it and the answer was, no, because actually she is wanting to daydream during church. And <laughs> <laughs> so and she's not making quite as no. yet. <laughs> no, not at all. But she's much younger. So, but it was just kind of funny because I was like, yeah, I'm not sure that we got the same situation going on here with <laughs> these two kids. Yeah, that is really funny. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm not the only one who feels it necessary to uh, keep her hand busy to keep her mind focused. Yeah. I kind of came to the conclusion with myself. I was like, okay, so maybe the ideal is being able to sit there with my Bible in my lap and listen to this and take it all in. But the ultimate ideal is that I paid attention to it and took it all in. And if I have to use this in order for that to happen, then I can make my peace with that because, you know, my heart is to learn. I do want to learn what my pastor's saying. And so, you know, that's just got to be part of it. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe in 20 years, we'll say we've been able to grow out of it. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe Maybe as we keep reading and uh, narrating and talking, well, even, I think it's kind of cool just along the same lines using Voxer and like talking to you. And I have a couple other friends I do Voxer with, but that is like a narration sometimes, you know, just working through your thoughts and talking to your friends and um, having those ideas and just getting them out. So that's, it's just cool to be able to do that. modern technology. (laughs) It really is remarkable. Some of the ways these things can be tools for allowing us to think through things together instead of in solitude, because hearing people is not even pushback in a disagreeable way, but like just hearing someone else's perspective just really rounds out the situation. You know, I'm Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Like you'll say something and I'll think, you know, we, we agree but your perspective was different and it helped me think of it even in a different light. And it was just so helpful. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great 
thought there that it's not always conflict, but just, you know, thinking through ideas in community helps us to grow because we get those other perspectives and we build on each other. We're all just kind of moving forward and growing together in different ways. Yeah. Well, we've been at this for almost an hour and a half. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So I guess we should wrap it up for the poor people. We're going to inflict this one. Um, I don't know. Do you have a quote you want to end with us with or anything? I was trying to look and see if I can find a good parting thought here. Well, you know, I found actually one that kind of goes with what you said. Maybe we can end there and just as a encouragement for people, but it's on, on page 166, she has a little subsection that she calls increase the channels. And so she's talking about how the inklings lived near each other. Some of them worked at the same university. So they find this variety of ways to communicate. So it's not just Thursday meetings. And you already mentioned the Eagle and Child where they have their Thursday dinners or whatever. But I was thinking about what you were saying about Voxer and how, you know, Voxer is different from meeting in a group or seeing your friend at a park. Like it's just a different, that medium lends itself to a different kind of communication, especially because thoughts don't get as lost sometimes. There is time because it's not instant to respond to every single thing someone said, Mm -hmm. if you want to, versus in a dynamic conversation, threads of the conversation have to get lost because there's just no way to do that efficiently. But anyway, in this section, she talks about the benefit of using a number of different ways to stay connected. And I was thinking about this with nurturing your local homeschool community, your Charlotte Mason group, your book group, or whatever, not to be afraid to add other channels is what she's calling it. So she talks about different formats, have their own advantages, different people will feel more comfortable. What does she say? In one mode rather than another. So using a variety of approaches allows more scope to express thoughts and ideas. So her takeaway is don't limit yourself to one way of exchanging ideas. I thought, well, as we talk about, you know, making things a safe place, saying, this group doesn't have to be limited to like for me the last Tuesday of the month or something that we can also plan a nature walk. We can also go out to dinner. We do like a Christmas party once a year where we all go out to dinner or what, I mean, whatever it is adding Voxer. But if we have the opportunity to do that, we might find that some people come out of their shell and we hear from them in a different way than if we just stuck to the one thing that we're doing. Yeah. I think that's great. I I think that's a wonderful parting thought. And um, I agree. And I think I've found that <laughs> the same thing is true just with my friends. There are some friends that I will text more often, even though when we meet face to face, we're just so busy, we don't have as much time to just actually talk. And then um, other friends that I'll do Voxer with more. Um, and then some friends that I make a point of meeting more often because our children just get along so well. And either we live close or it's worth it for mm-hmm. us to drive. But um, yeah, I think in using different ways of communication, we can also probably um, feed our own needs a little bit better um, in a variety of different ways. Hmm. So I guess people need to get busy and work on their Charlotte Mason communities and uh, not be afraid to ask some questions (laughs) and disagree with each other. (laughs) Yeah. Don't see it as a negative. See it as a positive, an opportunity to grow. Yes. Iron sharpening iron. Well, thanks. This has been fun. This has been fun. Thank you for having me. We'll have to do it again sometime. Definitely. And we will. We will do it again sometime.
Yes. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog. We hope you enjoyed the program. 